open up with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 47, the first six verses of Genesis 47. Hear God's holy and infallible word. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do thank you for this, your word, and for your holy day during which we can especially look into it and inquire of you. Please do speak to us, uh, give us ears to hear, and spirit-enlightened minds to understand. I ask this in the power of your spirit, in the name of your Son, our Lord and Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible story we are looking at today is a direct continuation of where we left off last time at the end of chapter 46. You'll recall that Joseph welcomed his family to Egypt, uh, directed them into the land of Goshen, that choice spot, as we read again here, and coached them on how to speak to the king when they were to go to his court. This then, beginning chapter 47, is the beginning of that conversation that Joseph was preparing them for. Uh, The key point I focused on last time at the end of chapter 46 was the Lord's very generous provision for his people in times of adversity. And certainly, presently, as we move on through 47, we could continue the same point. We see the outworking of how God is providing for them in that time of adversity. But today, I want to focus on something a bit more universal. Uh, Something that is relevant not just when God's people are facing adversity and recognizing the Lord's gracious hand in those circumstances, but at all times. So kind of a more universal point than just times of adversity. Uh, This focal point is at the end of our passage, verse 6, and you can see it in the title, uh, the wording of Scripture that I borrowed from. uh, The fact that competent men are distinguished literally speaking in the text, in Pharaoh's eyes, but we'll enlarge it to see how competent men are distinguished in God's eyes. Uh, Sadly, of course, by our inherited fallen nature and by the actual sins we commit, we are far from godliness that deserves any good distinction, far from being distinguished in any positive sense. Yet, and this is the beautiful truth that gives even the chief of sinners hope, by both position and by practice, that is justification and sanctification, both of which are of Christ, we are competent and receive the Lord's favor. Let me say that again a bit more succinctly. By Christ's work for us and in us, Christians are the competent men who are distinguished in God's eyes. Saying it again, and it's written for you there, by Christ's work for us and in us, Christians are the competent men who are distinguished in God's eyes. Uh, There's several things in that statement to unpack, uh, but first I want to cover the whole text. I don't want to just skip forward to verse 6 and its application. So let's do uh, a brief uh, skim through the preceding verses and uh, some valuable lessons we can derive from it. 
and then spend a bit more attention on the lessons and the meaning of verse 6. So beginning again at verse 1, let me read that again. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. Really no new information for us here. We've read this repeated times about Goshen, about the best of the land, about the father and the brothers all coming. This is not for our benefit. Uh, What we're hearing then is what is told to Pharaoh. Uh, The words are basically the same thing he told previously as he uh, invited them to Egypt, as he coached them on what to say. And here we read, this is what he actually said to Pharaoh. He told Pharaoh the same and very consistent report that he's giving to his boss, the king. Uh, He tells them the who, the what, and the where. Who, of course, father and brothers, their flocks and herds. The what, that they've come from Canaan. And the where, they're presently in the land of Goshen. I think we see here a very polite, a very brief statement to get the king up to speed and to explain the reason for their visit. It's not every day that the king is receiving these visitors. Undoubtedly, he's requested a special hearing. And so here he very succinctly and graciously is telling him why he's eating up some of the king's time. Moving on to verse 2 then. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. So this is a preface to get us, the reader, up to speed on who is going to be actually talking. It could be, I believe, read two different ways. One is that only five of the brothers came with him to court, everybody else from the family staying back in Goshen. Thus, the meeting involved Joseph, five brothers, making six, and then uh, Jacob, the father, which uh, we see uh, the evidence of him being present in the verses after our text for today. So seven Israelites total. Or it could be that they all, all the brothers, the whole family, uh, coming up from Goshen to the court, but from that, you know, lineup of the Israelites, five of them were appointed, and then, you know, later, the next verse, uh, step forward for the speaking assignments. I favor the second understanding, really is... uh, irrelevant in terms of the meaning of the text and its applications, but just trying to picture what's unfolding here. We could read it in two other ways. Uh, Another unknown detail is which of the five brothers this is. Uh, How did Joseph select them? We really don't know. Again, apparently it's unimportant or else the Lord would have told us. (laughs) It would have specified. Uh, The key thing I believe uh, for us to see here is that in chapter 46, we read that Joseph prepared them on how to answer Pharaoh. And here in verse 2, it tells us that not one or two, but five of them were the ones who actually gave this answer to the king. And then we move on to verse 3, just the beginning part, to see what it is, uh, the answer that they give. They give the answer in two parts. First part in verse 3. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? I'm sorry, this is the question, not yet the answer. So the question is quite short, that brief clause in verse 3. And we can see here that Joseph knew his boss well, right? He knew what the boss's interests were. He knew what... King, the king Pharaoh was going to be asking, and that's why he'd prepared his brothers ahead of time for that. Pharaoh's sole concern was, what is their occupation? Uh, recall that ahead of this, Pharaoh knew they, they had vast herds. 
uh, that's reported to him, or he, he states that in chapter 45. But that doesn't mean that he knew they were herdsmen. Recall that the uh, Egyptians have plenty of livestock, but that doesn't mean that they are herdsmen, right? They despise herdsmen, that's somebody else's work. So just because they have herds doesn't mean they actually do the work of herding them. It wasn't the owning of livestock that was an abomination to the Egyptians. It was the caretaking of livestock. So this isn't a, uh, a repetitive question that Pharaoh is asking. He knows they have animals, but what do you do for a living? On the side, perhaps. Uh, perhaps Pharaoh wanted to know if some of them had the same uh, administrative skills and giftings that Joseph had so that they could work in his government. Uh, but that's not the answer he received. And it's the remainder of verse 3 and into verse 4 where we receive or are presented for us to read the answer. So uh, second half of verse 3. And they, so we call this his five brothers, said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So two parts to that answer, kind of really answering his question, which is the first part, yes, we're shepherds, but um, they then enlarge on that. Uh, they add the information that it's not just us in this present generation, you know, we're not new to this trade, but rather both we and our fathers, plural fathers there, of course, indicating that it goes back multiple generations. And then the brothers voluntarily add some more detail, their goal in coming and the reason why they've come. Uh, the goal is, the word in the New King James as I read it, is to dwell, or as it's translated in some other uh, translations, sojourn, which I think conjures a little bit better the idea of a temporary stay. So the brothers were up front. They're saying, we're not looking to be here permanently. We're not trying to take over the best of your land and camp out here forever and call it our own. We're just visiting. We'll be here only for a time. Uh, this comports with the fact that I've uh, mentioned and really uh, dwelt on, uh, wrong use of the word here, that I've emphasized, uh, because it's not a temporary thing for us to trust God's promises, uh, so we don't dwell on that. Uh, we park on it, whatever. Anyway, um, the point I made several sermons ago about the importance of remembering God's promises and how as they descended to Egypt, they knew that their uh, travels there were temporary. So certainly it would have been illogical for the brothers to be saying, oh, uh, we're coming here forever. Thanks. Really appreciate it. No, they knew it was temporary. And so the request even indicates their honesty about wanting this to be temporary. They want to dwell. They want to sojourn. They want to be there for a while. They want to pass through. That's what sojourn means that they looked forward to going back to the land of Canaan. They didn't need, they didn't want a permanent home in Egypt. They knew their true home was elsewhere. In addition to that goal, as I said, to dwell, to be there temporarily, they also added the reason, that is the famine. Uh, this kind of seems obvious to us, uh, but it, it bears, and I think there's some wisdom we see here in what, the fact that these brothers mention it, very definitely it allayed any fears that the Pharaoh might have had. Well, what's going to happen once the famine's over, right? You know, um, are you going to stay? Do you have some aggressive plans? Yes, everybody's crying out for bread, but why are you really here? So they're being upfront and saying, yes, it's because of the severe famine. That's why we've come here. That's the only reason we've come, and we look forward to returning when we are able. Then they close with a very humble request, saying, please. Always helps to say please, right? We are your servants. So that humble position before Pharaoh. He is the king. He's in charge of this land. They're entering at his uh, privilege. And so they say, please, and admit their dependence upon him. 
And then the last part of our brief skim of the text, verses 5 and 6, which records Pharaoh's answer, not to the brothers, uh, but to Joseph. And I believe that's just the formality of, you know, Joseph's the one in charge. He's the one who works with Pharaoh. So here it is, Pharaoh speaking to Joseph. He said, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Go for it, is basically what he's saying. Yes, you've already been there as a landing spot as you came from Canaan. You may stay there as long as you need. And uh, he affirms that this will be a dwelling, that it won't be permanent. Uh, with the added instruction that I mentioned at the beginning, and we'll spend a lot more detail on later, that if there are any competent men among them, make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So we will come back to that. But let me now, moving to section two of our outline, run through some valid lessons we can learn uh, from each of these earlier verses, and then we'll wrap up and spend a bit more focused and uh, enlarged time on a valuable lesson from that uh, last verse about the competent men. So going back to the beginning, uh, and I want to just remind as a preface for this, looking at the lessons, that uh, it is important for us to not just want to be hearers of the word. Y'all are very attentive hearers. Really appreciate that. <laughs> not a lot of distractions going on. That's wonderful. So essential and the fundamental first step to be hearers of the word. But we don't want to stop there. We want to be doers of the word. So Lord willing, uh, as the Lord's uh, uh, burdened me with uh, some points here, uh, that we can learn and be inspired and have a vision for how to be doers of this portion of God's word today. So see a few basic lessons in these verses. First, as you can see in the outline, as I've worded it there, identifying with the lowly. The key verse tie in here is Hebrews 2.11, where the he is Jesus. We read, for both he, Jesus who sanctifies, and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he, again the Lord Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Rich verse, a lot of points could be drawn from it, but I want to focus on the fact that Jesus sanctifies us and is one with us who are being sanctified. Though he is God incarnate so far above and beyond us, that's almost unfathomable. He never sinned and enjoyed true eternal fellowship within the Godhead. He is not ashamed of us. He calls us brethren, and that is utterly amazing. Bringing it down many, many notches, uh, but yet I believe the story is here to remind us of that vast truth. Joseph could have easily dismissed his brethren, but yet he identified with them lowly people. He knew that the Egyptians regarded Hebrews, just virtue of their nationality, as abominable. Uh, even though he personally enjoyed Pharaoh's uh, trust, as a dedicated worker and a man with great wisdom, responsible over nearly everything in the whole realm, they, the Egyptians, still do not eat with Joseph. We learned that in chapter 43. Joseph knew that his family was doubly judged as abominable, not by, just by nationality as Hebrews, but also by occupation as shepherds. Joseph could have distanced himself from them. Instead, he was not afraid to identify with them. So how much more so our Lord and Savior who took upon himself our nature, born of a woman, and uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus, think how Peter denied our Lord three times because he was afraid to be associated with him. Yet Jesus promises to never deny us those for whom he has spilled his blood. Humanly speaking, he has every right to, yet he doesn't. He 
in the ultimate sense, has identified with the lowly. So never forget that Jesus identifies with us lowly sinners. That fact is essential for our life as Christians. Second, looking at verse 3, uh, we see the honest answer that the brothers gave in verse 3, and that is blessed of God. The brothers could have given a more general answer than we are shepherds. They could have said something like, oh, we work in agriculture, right? They could have kind of tried to smooth over the fact that they're actually got their hands on and are in the rough and dirty work of caring for the animals. But the brothers were specific. They were honest. They were straightforward. They followed Joseph's instructions on what they were to say. Uh, The Lord says, and I've noted it here in your outlines, uh, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Who was it who supremely honored the Father? Of course, it's the Son. John 6, we're told that the heart of Christ's earthly ministry was to do His Father's will. And in John 8, He explicitly said, I honor my Father. And we too, by grace, through faith, honor him when we seek to obey his commands. And truthful, upright answers, like we see of the brothers to Pharaoh, are part of that. The Lord certainly honored Jacob's family by meeting all of their needs during this time of great affliction. So, honest answers, blessed of God. Third point from verse 4. Be careful in seeking aid from the ungodly. Uh, One commentator I read through this last week uh, paraphrased a much more ancient author by saying, it commonly happens that he who enters the court of a tyrant is under the necessity of laying down his liberty at the door. Let's say that again. It commonly happens that he who enters the court of a tyrant is under the necessity of laying down his liberty at the door. And we see that play out as we're no doubt familiar with the general story as it continues of the Israelites down in Egypt, that a few generations later, the Israelites were not at liberty to leave Egypt. They were trapped and under increasingly severe bondage. And that, even though, as I mentioned up front, the brothers said, hey, we're here to dwell. We're Can we enter into an agreement that we're not here permanently? And when Pharaoh answered back, he said, yes, you may dwell. So really he agreed to, this is a temporary stay. And if it's temporary, it means you can go and come when you want. But that's not the way it happened later. When the later kings uh, decided, and as the text in Exodus says, there arose a king who did not know Joseph and did not honor these agreements. So, lesson learned. Be careful in seeking aid from the ungodly. Expect, and certainly don't be surprised when they don't abide by the agreements made five minutes ago, five years ago, five generations ago, right? That's the way they work. Finally now, point D, 2D, we get to the uh, bigger topic that I've had on my mind uh, the whole time. And I admit this doesn't always happen, but when I first was asked to preach today and I first looked at the text before I said yes, it just jumped out at me. So sometimes I got to stare at it for hours, do a lot of reading before I really see a key point that I think is worth spending your time on. Uh, But this is what jumped out at me initially. That's why I said yes fairly quickly, rearranged my week for it. And it's something I hope that will be of value to uh, each of us individually and to this congregation, uh, really for years to come. There's great implications to this. So it's the issue of Pharaoh's offer to give distinguished positions to any of Joseph's brothers who were, as I've already read several times, competent as shepherds. So uh, 
Maybe you're really quick and have already looked at my uh, verse citations there on the outline so you know where I'm headed. But if you don't see where I'm headed already, what can we learn from this? Uh, To begin, I want to add a bit more detail as to the exact word used here. The King James translates it competent. So we might at first think, well, I sure hope Joseph's brothers weren't incompetent. I mean, that would be really embarrassing, right? And so we get this idea that you're either able to do it or you're just completely a failure. The idea of competence versus incompetence. Uh, But it's not uh, black and white, at least in that manner. Uh, Trying to feel out this word a little bit more, uh, other evangelical translations have able or active or special skill. And looking at the range of use throughout uh, the Old Testament, we see that it describes a person who is well proficient, not uh, totally incapable versus proficient, but proficient versus decent and good at it. Uh, It's both descriptive i.e. of a person who has ability, but also often implies comparative sense, a person who has more ability than others. So coming back to the text here, all of the brothers, of course, were shepherds. Uh, Pharaoh asked that if some were better than others, so if they were really more competent, I think it would be valid, at least in the modern usage of the word competent, to uh, supply the word more there into our text. So Pharaoh is asking if there's some that are more competent, more able than others, it would be especially useful to him uh, to put them into service over the royal flocks. And as a passing thought, we notice that there's no record of this actually happening which begs the question, maybe they were all incompetent, right? (laughs) But let's not jump to bad conclusions and be all negative about Joseph's brothers. There's plenty of other things on the negative column for them already, but we don't need to add this. It could be because they were incompetent. It could be because uh, the Spirit uh, never moved Joseph to want to subject them to being pulled out of the Israelite community and put into service of Pharaoh. You know, Joseph knew, you know, I'm walking a tight line here. I want to be a godly man, but I really don't want to draw my brothers into this. So that could have been, or it could have been they did serve over uh, Pharaoh's flocks. And as with other details I already alluded to, just isn't important. So the Holy Spirit didn't inspire that detail into the Bible. But whatever it is, uh, just notice we don't know if it actually happened or not. That all said, I now want to apply this in a way that, as I said, I discern is needful for us uh, in our congregation here today. And I hope you follow my logic as we move along, as I try to articulate for you what that idea was uh, that the Lord uh, guided my thoughts as I meditated on this passage uh, this last week. First, if you will, or just uh, listen along, uh, turn with me to 2 Peter 1.10. 2 Peter 1.10, and we'll be also spending some time on verse 5 and following, so we'll kind of fill in the gap from 5 down to 10. 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 10, familiar verse, no doubt. Brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And then if you back up to verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, <clears throat> to, virtue, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So we see there 
So I started at the end and went to the beginning, but now we come back to verse 10. Brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So that phrase, we could toss around a lot, making your calling and election sure, I believe is valid to see as parallel with a summary of those previous steps of growing in grace, growing in virtue, in knowledge, in self-control. The end goal being Christ's likeness. To not do it, as we read in verse 9, is to be just like you were before, dead in your sins. There's two points I want to draw from this passage in Peter. The first is diligence. Notice how diligent and diligence, same Greek word, different grammatical forms, are repeated in verses 5 and 10. This speaks to giving serious effort, doing well with what you have. And as a parallel thought, Draw to your minds Jesus' parable of the minas in Luke 19. Uh, we're expected to steward the master's investment well so it grows. Now, they'd be a diligent investor of the minas. In that case, they were all given the same amount, but some multiplied it to different degrees. So being diligent, uh, diligence as a steward of God's grace is essential. Uh, the second point from these verses in 2 Peter is that this diligence, which results in growth of grace, is expected of all Christians, right? We all have the same election. We all have the same general call. We all have the same spirit who bears in us his fruit. We all have the same Lord, faith, and baptism, quoting from Ephesians 4. So at this point, let me just check in with you. Are you all with me that all Christians can and should be growing more and more mature in Christlikeness, right? This isn't just the people of Peter's day. This isn't just some special segment of the church that he's addressing. All Christians can and should be growing more and more mature in Christ-likeness. Or to use Moses' terminology to bring us back to Genesis 47, we all are to grow more and more spiritually competent. All right, I see some nods. Thank you. So moving on from that, I want to narrow our focus a bit further along the path of spiritual maturity and competence. And that brings us to the other scripture that I put there at 2D. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, you're going to recognize uh, this deals with qualifications for officers, specifically uh, elders. First Timothy 3, verse 1, and I'll read actually all the way down to 11 because it deals with wives of deacons. But. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, Thus being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Praise God that he equips men such as that to fill that description. We here at Dominion Covenant Church have the privilege of having men among us who well demonstrate these qualifications. 
Yet I ask you, in what way are any of those characteristics not applicable to each and every man in the church? Or should be, right? As we grow in maturity. And for the ladies, you can look at the wives' description there in verse 11. Are they not applicable to every Christian woman? Let me jog your mind, your thinking a little different way. Is it okay for just any old Christian man to say, well, you know, I don't feel called to be an elder, so I don't need to be temperate. Uh, It's okay for me, in terms of temperance of my mood, to fly off the handle on Facebook. Uh, I don't need to gain expertise in handling the Bible. It's okay for me to be a novice. I don't feel called to be an elder. Is it okay for a Christian woman to say, you know, my husband's not a deacon. I can slander people whenever I want, right? (laughs) Clearly, that's absurd. And so you agree with me. So it does seem funny when I state it like that. And the truth is that the officer qualifications are simply a description of the mature Christian whom God has blessed with growth in grace to the degree that the man is seen as, as we've already discussed, especially competent, especially able. But that doesn't assume that everybody else is a deadbeat. Doesn't assume that Joseph's brothers were deadbeat shepherds by, the, by Pharaoh being hopeful that some of them were especially good. Uh, would make it easy to stand out if they were, but doesn't uh, presume the Lord's intention that everybody stay mediocre and a few rise to the top just by virtue of being compared to those deadbeats. So my admonition is that we all should be diligent to pursue a high degree of competence. So looking at these elder qualifications, obviously they're put there by the divine author and by the apostle to say, this is how you need to measure these men. You're appointing elders. This is what they need to um, Uh, be measured by, but the very fact that the whole group of men in the churches there were being measured by that means that they all were being exercised in those same areas. And also, if we think of things not measured in those qualifications, but things like uh, doing the work of evangelism, which is referred to by Mr. Mays earlier, Uh, I believe it's in the epistle to Timothy, where it says, do the work of of an evangelist. So don't think that you're excused from the evangelistic task just because you're not called to be an elder or an evangelist uh, by label. Uh, We're all called to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, and sometimes that manifests itself in an evangelistic uh, context, a conversation. Uh, In Acts 6, it talks about the importance of the elders devoting themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. Uh, Does that mean you don't have to pray if you're not an elder? No. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that all Christians should pray without ceasing. Right? So you see that there's just general activities that everybody, every Christian, is growing in, pursuing God's grace in, maturing in, become more and more competent in, and then, Lord willing, he will endow certain ones with greater uh, proficiency in it, and they will be assigned to those tasks, those positions of responsibility. So my admission, admonition again is that we all should be diligent to pursue a high degree of competence, of ability. So at the very least, we can fulfill Peter's injunction that I read. And beyond that, just to speak hopefully here, perhaps it will be, and I could point, ah, there you go, point 10 fingers. (laughs) Who knows who they're aimed at? The Holy Spirit does. Perhaps it will be you all who will be the ones duly equipped in that special way to be set over God's flock as pastor teachers in this congregation in the future, or church planters the world over, missionaries in China. Who knows what it will be? But it starts with responding diligently to the call, the uh, list of challenging steps that Peter points us to. 
Uh, we can certainly talk later about how to exercise ourselves for spiritual growth according to Peter's instructions. But right now, I simply wanted to be honest with the Lord's instruction that you must exercise and to give you a vision for where that can lead to. Because friends, we must not be satisfied with the mundane. We certainly don't want to be satisfied with just comparing ourselves with our neighbor and getting into this prideful thing saying, well, you know, I spend five more minutes in prayer than I think the other people do, or I know that I can give a little bit better answer, and so that's good enough. No, it's not good enough. Don't compare yourselves to your neighbors. So don't be satisfied with mundane. Don't be satisfied with comparing what you're judging your neighbors to be doing. And certainly don't be satisfied with self-service, making yourself comfortable only be satisfied with setting aside your comfort and wants and your own self-esteem in order to serve others and to seek their good. And I pray that we would do this diligently in faith, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. So to conclude, may everyone here, myself included, apply ourselves diligently and pray fervently to the end that we become more and more competent to serve in Christ's church. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do uh, humbly uh, commit ourselves to your care and to your equipping. And I believe it needs to begin with uh, confession and repentance that we do not exercise ourselves diligently. We do not avail ourselves of the opportunities we have to pray more, to serve more, to grow in knowledge of your word more, to gain skill in speaking more. All these things, Lord, we have so much room to grow. So would you meet us in our humility as you've promised to give grace to the humble. We need it. And may you graciously grow us in all these things that we may not merely, in the eyes of men, like the brothers in Pharaoh's time, uh, perhaps receive some commendation and a, a special job, but we would receive your commendation, especially important, important to do good in your eyes for your glory. And this I pray for your people gathered here today, praying in Jesus' name, amen.